Welcome to Burrows and Burbs with hosts John Ingle and Roberto Cabrera. Over the next hour, you're going to learn some insider knowledge that will help you overcome and strategize in the cutthroat world of real estate. Now, here are your hosts, John and Roberto. Welcome, everybody. Burrows and Burbs, number 125, season four. Today, we're talking about new development in New York City. And we've got two very special guests, but before I get to them, I'm gonna hit share screen and I wanna thank our sponsor, Grace Farms. They've got the third annual Design for Freedom Summit coming up March 26th. That's a picture of last year's summit. You see that the uh, river building fills right up. So get your tickets now. What is the Design for Freedom Summit? It's a momentous day of action and awareness hear from leading experts across the globe who are working to eradicate forced and child labor from the built environment. Very relevant to today's show. We're talking about new development and they are trying to make sure that it's ethical development. So come join us at Grace Farms on Tuesday, March 26, 10 to six, I will be there. So if you're looking for me, that's where you're gonna find me. And with that, I wanna thank my two Superstar guest, Stephen Kligerman. I think this might be your fourth time on the show. And Jason Thomas, uh, this might be your first. So, it is the first. All right. So who are these guys? Let me go to that's Stephen Kligerman, president, Brown Harris Stevens Development Marketing in New York. Is somebody trying to call me? He's recently been on the Breaking Ground with Stephen Kligerman, Brown Harris Stevens podcast. Not been on. That's his podcast. That's his podcast. So we're going to want to ask him about that. <laughs> and then we've got Jason Thomas, Senior Vice President, Research and Market Analytics, uh, who works with Stephen. And so without further ado. Oh, and by the way, that's my co-host, Roberto Cabrera. Where are you, Roberto? I'm on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. All right. All right. So without further ado, what are we talking about today, Stephen? Wow. Uh, We're talking all things new development in in New York City and and the boroughs. Uh, Hopefully we'll be able to give some insight into what's happening in the market today and what do we forecast for for the near future and, and years to come. Steve, so what's the I, one minute? What's the one minute elevator speech in general about what's happened in the last year? Uh, so you know, it's been an interesting year. Uh, what's happened is that inventories have contracted, uh, and and Jason can get into the, the the minute analytics of it really much better than I can. But you know, with inventories contracting, you know, even though interest rates have gone up, prices have remained reasonably stable because of a lack of inventory. Um, That's also though created a lower uh, absorption rate because people, first of all, don't have a lot to compare things to, and there's not a lot of new product out there to choose from, which has pushed some buyers actually to the resale market. Seeing a lot of cash. How big is the new development market in New York? It occurs to me uh, that I, I don't know how many apartments are normal, and what is it that you mean? It, it occurred to me, are we talking about an addition of 2,000 apartments in an average year? We're only adding 3,000 and we need 5,000. I mean, what's the, no- give me some numbers, Jason. Yeah, I'll tell you, 
It, it's a bit hard to, you know, we talk about, we say this all the time, real estate being part art, part science, new development numbers, inventory is a lot of art because we're trying to understand it, there's available, right? That are actively listed on the consumer facing aggregators. Okay. Um, and of course there's shadow that are being withheld by the developers. And there's companies that have come into that world and tried to define and really and create the transparency around those. But there's also these pipeline units, ones that are waiting for um, the offering plan to be approved. And it really is always a moving number. Um, looking forward, we're at about 10,000 units. It was about 12,000 uh, the year before. So what you're seeing is, like Steve said, this contraction of the availability where we're you know, contracts are being signed, um, but less, so less is coming online, even though less contracts were signed in 2023 than in 2022, the inventory is still consolidating and contracting because less inventory is coming on to, coming online to replace it. Right. Which makes sense. If you think about it, if, if you look at the development cycle, right, you know, because of COVID, we had, you know, almost two years of just no movement at all. And then, you know, we came out of that and, you know, construction prices went through the roof. So developers are having trouble trying to understand and make sense of what they could do, even with sites they already owned, because all of a sudden, let's say they owned a site that they bought within the year before COVID hit, right? Then you got 18 months, 24 months of basically nothing going on. Now you came out of COVID and when they bought that site, they were projecting $350, $400 a square foot for construction costs. Now they came out of COVID and those construction costs were all of a sudden 550, 650 a square foot and their pro forma got completely turned upside down. So a lot of um, projects that were supposed to start didn't start. I, I have clients sitting on vacant land now for four years. Um, getting back to inventory for one moment, uh, Manhattan alone typically sees a pipeline of about 6,000 apartments, which are usually like a three to four year forward looking. We only have 3,000 apartments in the Manhattan pipeline right now. So we're about half the number of units in the pipeline that we would normally see for sale. So that's that's creating, uh, you know, an inventory drought. Uh, and, you know, Jason mentioned, you know, 10,000 total units in the market. But if you look at the new development market, there's like five buildings that have like half of the inventory in the development inventory, not the whole inventory. So, and those five buildings are massive buildings like one Wall Street or um, one Seaport, you know, uh, one Seaport, not one Seaport, um, one Manhattan Square, one Seaport stalled, um, one Manhattan Square. This, those two buildings alone make up close to a thousand apartments. So the, the amount of actual good inventory is really low. But what I'm sure, John, you and Roberto know better than anyone is being top brokers. When there's very little to compare something to, it's really hard for a buyer to make a decision. So, you know, they're, 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 they're kind of stalled right now when it, when, when it comes to that. Hasn't uh, some of your inventory been eaten up? We're talking about for sale inventory right now. We're not talking about rental inventory right now. Hasn't some of your, the fact that this resale market has been so tight with inventory, hasn't it actually helped new development? Because a lot of people, it's been like the only option. Yeah. And Steve, if I can jump in ju just for a moment. So first of all, just to, just to back up for a second, when I said 10,000 also too, that wasn't just Manhattan, that was citywide. Right. Um, so because I didn't want Stephen, the numbers to be different because they're, they're the same number, just I was speaking citywide. So about that, uh, resale has been 
very tight to uh, manipulated by mortgage rates, right? Because if you're sitting on a 3% or under mortgage rate, you're very hesitant to go out and put your house in the market and try to go find a replacement at a six, six and a half, seven percent mortgage, right? So that's constrained. Now, developers, of course, don't have that same constraint because, right, there's there's no such thing as, well, I'm sitting on this kind of mortgage. I mean, of course, there's corporate loan, there's condo inventory loans, but it is it is definitely a different beast than, than the retail market for individual owners. And Steve, sorry, I, I jumped in. I just wanted. No, to I was, that's why we're here. We're here to we're here to go back and forth and banter back and forth. So that's all good. Um, yeah, but remember now, we're talking about for sale inventory on the rental inventory. You know, that's a problem too because the cities and state back in 2019, the 421A programs all sunset, and we don't have a new one. So you know, Governor Hochul just made some uh, exceptions for some projects like in Gowanus and in Inwood where those projects are able to move forward and they pushed off their deadlines to, um, to, uh, obtain their 421A or, or, or affordable New York tax abatements. But that's also creating a housing crisis here in the city. And what we're seeing now is thankfully in Roberto, I'm curious to see what you're seeing in your resale business is rents have risen so high that a lot of, particularly I'd say first and second time tenants or owners are now looking to buy because they're realizing how much it costs to rent. And we see a lot of families helping their adult age children buy apartments because they're basically priced out of the rental market or it just doesn't make any sense to rent. You can actually buy for the same, if not even a little less than renting and you're potentially building equity as well. So the, the constraints in the rental market, I, I believe in 2024 are going to help buoy the for sale market. I think, I think that's right. Uh, and it's been, it's been gradual because people, the, the first initial reaction or somebody, their gut reaction is to just rent. Yeah. But now that that has happened, and also there's a big cycle of leases that are going to come due. And I think those people are going to be out looking to, to buy property at this time. I think it's slow coming, but as the, as those, uh, the, the larger like cycle of, of leases, which is going to be really May, June come, there could be a lot of buying coming this spring to try to replace those rentals. Yeah. yeah. I, and, and I, I, certainly, well, certainly as rates ease too, right? Because what's really interesting, there was a period of time when rates peaked last October. So in October of 2023, when, you know, we always talk about the scale, right? Is it better to rent? Or is it better to buy? It's this constant ebb and flow among the conversation, right? The narrative among um, would-be buyers or would-be renters. And it, there was a point where it felt equally punitive, I would assume, to someone looking to buy or rent, right? Because rents were at all-time highs, coinciding at the same time that mortgage rates were at, not, of course, all-time highs, but 2021, 20, 22-year highs. So that was, you know, that was real. But now to, to everyone else's point, as those rates start to ease back and, and you know, we haven't seen the same kind of easing a little bit in the rental market, it starts to tip the scale back towards the sales. I'm going to so, pull up. That was, that was just so profound. It was just, it, no, it, it, I, I, I was picking up his, his next visual. So I want to I want to combine two thoughts. You mentioned the effect of interest rates on the market, and uh, you, you've talked about the effect of inflation. Uh, you said five hundred and fifty dollar and to six hundred and fifty dollar per foot cost. Was that a real number or was that a made up number? 
No, no, no. Those are those are real numbers. I mean, those, those are real numbers. Those are real numbers. I mean, you know, it, it it's the cost of construction has gone up dramatically. Also, you know, for those of you who have walked or driven around Midtown Manhattan, a lot of the construction jobs have gone to rebuilding the Park Avenue office corridor. Believe it or not, so you've got these gigantic tear down office buildings that are now being basically new buildings are being built, and a lot of that construction. Um, work is going towards all those new super tall office buildings. And, you know, that's, that's driving up prices for your residential developer. So I, what, what I hear you saying is that the interest rates and inflation are both having a negative effect on the market. And yet you also mentioned in the very next breath, record prices for rentals. We hit 20-year highs on, on rental prices. So this is your third quarter report, and we had an average price per foot active. What do you see happening in the fourth quarter, which is about to come out report, and the first quarter? Are these numbers going up uh, or down, or, or is the interest rates continuing to have a negative effect and inflation continuing to have a negative effect? So Steve, can I take this one for oh, a second? Please. I have to, I'm going to try to be as profound as I was a moment ago. I'm going to try to be even more so. So even though we produce these reports, the reporting has been my job for quite some time. Let me build in a little, uh, not a little, a massive caveat, a disclaimer, an asterisk, whatever you want to call it around comparing quarter to quarter. We all, and I am ultimately guilty of this, look at these reports in comparisons quarter to quarter as an index, the same way we look, we would look at the S&P 500 index, right? Now we have to talk about the, the 10 million pound elephant in the room, right? If we're looking at the S&P 500, one quarter to the next, one day to the next, we're looking at the same 500 stocks, right? Not traded once every month or two months or six months, you know, high speed trading. I mean, these can trade thousands of times or whatever the number is per day, right? So it is truly an apples to apples comparison. So we look at Q3 2023 and Q4 2023 for S&P 500, we are looking at pure consumer sentiment. What does the consumer think about these 500 stocks? When we look at quarter to quarter real estate reports, let's say there's 500 in the comp set, right? For the Upper East Side or Upper West Side or, or Midtown or whatever you want to say, the chance of the same 500 units trading the next time in in mathematics, we try not to say zero. We try to say approaching zero. It is absolutely zero. Okay. The chance of even a few units trading the next quarter is very, 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 very small. Right. So the point of that is, and also too, that we're talking about closings. Closings can reflect sales from five years ago. As we saw the lightning rod for this whole conversation was Ken Griffin, when he purchased the $240 million in 220 Central Park South. It closed quarter two of 2019. It was signed in a contract in 2015. So mm -hmm. we're sometimes looking at a quarter where really we're reflecting consumer sentiment a year ago, two years ago, three, four years ago. So the point of that, that is, as much as we do it and as much as I have my job, I mean, I, I, have, I have a job based on this, right? But we have to take it with a grain of salt to some degree because we are not comparing apples to apples. We are not comparing... We would have to have 500 units 
in quarter three and the exact same 500 units in quarter four, and they would have all had to trade. Okay, Jason, throw, yeah. throw out the market report and tell me that based on what you were seeing two, three, and four years ago, what's going to happen for the next there, four so, so, and you just made my next point is that you you just made it. This is this was, I, I didn't, I swear everybody on this, I did not send this or text this offline. So the idea is we have to, we have to pull out, zoom out, and we have to look back in history. And we have to look at this from 30,000 feet up, not you know, 10 feet above the ground. And then that's where we see, we really start to see the trends. There was this massive tick up. It, you, anyone who was brokers, I'm an active broker myself, have been for almost 13 years. You could feel 2012, 13, 14, 15 building. I know you remember that, right? Where you couldn't even get in the door. You had to beg your way in, trick your way in just to show a client new development, right? And then things peaked in 15, 16, 17. The market never knows when it happens. We're always chasing the past. And it started to slow down. And we see that COVID was a bottom, but 2019 was almost as low as far as price per square foot. And then we see things rocket out of COVID, which makes sense because there was such this enthusiasm and, and the, the number of sales being driven, this pent-up demand. And then we've seen a correction. This is what the market... So to your point, here, here's, here's the point. We're at a leveling off. Okay, what we had was this dip from 17, 18, 19 into COVID, this huge boom in prices, and then it's it's trended down again and is leveled off because what, what I call it in economics terms, I'm a chemist by training, but I, I think I'm an, an economist, is this reversion to the mean. We're always in a pendulum where, where the consumer, driven by fear, emotion, Sheet mentality, we're always overselling or underbuying or, or, or the combination of two. We never quite hit equilibrium. But, but looking forward, but looking forward, you just said that the market has not accepted or reflected the um the rise in building costs from say 450 a foot to 600. So we still have to price in a 33% increase building costs. We still have to price in the scarcity because they're not building enough, we have to price. So what I hear you saying is for the next several years, we're going to see a rapid escalation in prices, regardless of what interest rates do. Well, yeah. you, you, will, you will see an escalation in prices, but it also is dependent in, on what inventory is available at that time and what's been built, right? So one of the things that buoyed the price per square foot and the average price in 23 was that a lot of very expensive apartments sold. For instance, 200 Amsterdam, which we which 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 we brought to market and represented to 90% sales. We sold 144 million dollars of property in that building in 2023 at an average price per square foot in a very high 2000s. So that is going to have an impact on every every quarterly report right, in 23 is impacted by a building like that or a building like Central Park Tower, you know, that, that, that also sold very high, um, high price apartments. What we started to see in the beginning of 24 was a shift to more modest priced apartments. I'd say the one and a half to two and a half, three million dollar market. So I would... I would not be surprised if the first quarter 24 reports show a decrease in average price 
but not necessarily per square foot, just in dollars. So what about volume? And, 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 volume, and volume will be down overall, but volume in the, in the one and a half-ish to two and a half, three might be up. I think the volume in the high end will be down because we sold a ton of apartments at 200 in Amsterdam. They sold a bunch of apartments at Central Park Tower. They sold a number of apartments at 111 West 57th Street, for instance, right? So I think you'll see the per square foot price probably fluctuate a little bit. I think your average price will come down because of that. So, you know, it's very hard to gauge because you really have to look at each, each sub-market too, which is what Jason was alluding to. Like, you can't look at the market in a vacuum. You've got to look at it in categories. So, you know, I think, you know, buyers, you know, buyers need to pay attention to fluctuations in the market. But also, I think in the third and fourth quarters of last year, you know, you saw some opportunistic purchasing of some trophy-ish apartments because the, the opportunity presented itself. I don't see as many opportunities in 24 coming because I think the inventory for high quality property is pretty low. Interesting. That the only reason the average price is coming down is because we're selling smaller, less expensive units. Well, that, that's, that's what I'm seeing, you know, and that's what I'm seeing in the first, well, first two weeks of January was slow, but since the middle of January, I'm seeing, a lot more one bedrooms and, and reasonable two bedrooms selling, not as many super expensive apartments. But again, that's because so many super expensive apartments sold in 23, you know, although we just had that townhouse sale in the West Village for $72 million. Double what it was paid for five years ago. Can we shift gears a little bit? Because you just mentioned about there not that much high quality housing or are you talking about new development? Because I wanted to ask you about yes. how, how the actual final product has changed. I'm assuming that in since 15, that things have gotten better because a lot of, I find that a lot of new development that I go into and I show and I've sold, you know, I come back five, six years later, looks pretty worn. Doesn't, doesn't wear well. Very few of these properties wear well. So yeah. Are things better? Are they are they lasting more than they used to? Or you know, is that why it's more expensive? I mean, talk to me a little bit about that. Uh, it's more expensive just because of inflation. I mean, you know, and and again, the lack of skilled labor. And again, you know, walk walk Park Avenue from uh, the north end of Grand Central to Fifty Sixth Street, and you know, there's one, two, three, four, five take down office buildings that are now being, you know, re-envisioned with these massive trusses into brand new office buildings. You know, thousands of, of workers working on that, all that material going just into those buildings alone. Then pile on, you know, a year ago, there was a massive hurricane in the South. All those materials go down there to rebuild everything. Whenever these things happen, the cost of materials, the cost of construction goes up. You know, and, and now also, you know, in New York, we have, uh, you know, prevailing wage situations. You know, we have all these 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 labor laws that are, have increased the cost as well. And, uh, you know, Meredith, I know, brought up a point. It's also increased the cost of carrying an apartment in Manhattan. It's increased common charges or maintenance if you're in a co-op. Real estate taxes 
almost always go up every year, although we did have a big tax reduction at one of our properties at Vandewater recently, which is an actual tax reduction, not a, not a concession. But things are getting more expensive. And, you know, if you looked at the, um, the inflation report from the other day, inflation was looking pretty good until you got to housing. And yeah. housing blew the number out, right? So everyone's complaining, you know, about, you know, inflation, inflation, inflation. But, you know, everyone wants to sell their house for more than they paid for it. So something's got to give. Yeah. Uh, 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 who, I have two questions. Who's buying these houses? And when I look at the demographic charts, I see that 40-year-olds, millennials, are buying their first apartment. And there's been an increase in uh, boomers buying uh, the second apartment in the last two years. So you've seen both of those phenomena. Who's buying new development? Because you did allude earlier to boomers buying their children apartments. And so there's that factor going on. So are we buying a first uh, first apartment or are we buying a second residence because I spend most of my time somewhere else? So who's the customer for new development now? The second question is kind of related. Are you seeing, because of the affordability crunch, inflation and affordability concerns that people are saying, I'm not going to develop the next building with swimming pools and common spaces. I'm going to try and, with a focus on affordability, reduce the amenities in order to provide a better, more affordable experience, uh, targeting perhaps those millennials. So mm -hmm. talk to me about who's buying and how do they feel about amenities? Sure. So as we stated earlier, as you just restated, um, there's definitely a big buyer pool in parents helping their adult age children, adult age between 22 and 30, maybe up to 35, um, assisting them in purchasing their first home. Uh, we also see a lot of parents buying apartments because they have one child in university right now in Manhattan and they have a second one about going in. So they're thinking, okay, my kids can live together, right? I'll save a little bit of money and eventually they'll move out and we'll take that on as a pied-a-terre. So that's, that's one type of buyer. Then there's the straight pied-a-terre buyer who, you know, they're empty nesters. They sold their house in Connecticut, you know, for oodles of money because there's like five houses available in all of like Southern Connecticut to buy, right? And they bought a vacation home where the, whether it be, you know, further up north in Connecticut or out in the Hamptons or Rhode Island or wherever, and they want an apartment in the city. Um, we've seen the Chinese investor come back pretty strong for one and two bedroom apartments uh, under $3 million in Manhattan. Uh, and, and then you've got your, you know, your tried and true Manhattanite and they're buying their second or third apartment. They're upgrading because they had a life event and they want to stay in the city. So, you know, there's different buckets of buyers. Um, they don't really change that much, but the one that has continued to, I'd say, grow over the years is the, is the parents buying for the adult age child. Um, there's a but, but, but those developers have got to say, wait a minute, one of these days that gravy train is going to end. Those boomers are getting kind of old. If I'm looking five well, years ahead, am or I is it on the millennial or needs? Or is it going to go away? That gravy train, that money may not be them buying it, but they're passing to their kids and then they'll buy it. Right. That is that who they're focused there. on? Am I focused Real. on the 50-year-old in five years? 
Uh, you might be. You, you, you could be. You know, I think some of this also is estate planning, right? You know, it's, it, you buy an apartment, you know, your child, your adult age child lives in it. No one likes to think of, you know, the end result of our lives. But when you pass, step up that basis, pretty good estate planning. You know, it's smart estate planning. Um, you know, also, again, the pool of it's gotten better, but the pool of rental housing in Manhattan compared to other big cities that I've seen is pretty lousy. You know, you asked about like amenities, you know, amenities are great, but particularly for a rental developer, they're very expensive to operate. Um, buildings, condo developers are kind of all over the place. It really depends on what your target price point is. I think if you're targeting a price point of 2,500 a foot or greater, you're putting almost every amenity you possibly can into that building. Um, if you're targeting a price point of under $2,500 a foot, you're definitely not thinking about a pool. You're thinking about more self-service amenities because just your cost of labor alone with prevailing wage has gone up so much. And if you think about like a full service building with a full-time attended lobby, you know, you're talking about, you know, payrolls of, you know, if they've got a live-in super, they've got a porter or two, they've got, you know, four shifts of door or lobby person, talking about budgets of six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars a year just for staffing alone. So, you know, it goes up, these, these expenses go up quite quickly. And, you know, for a developer particularly, you know, number one, the higher the carrying cost until a certain point in purchase, the lower the, the lower the purchase price has to be for people to afford it. But the other side is, remember, these developers, they're going to be carrying these apartments for some time after the first few closings, and they don't want to pay these high common charges either. So it really depends on what the building is. You know, I'm working, we're working on a building right now that's going to come up on the Upper West Side in a couple of years. It's only going to be 35 or 36 apartments. The most apartments you'll have on a floor of three. Um, that building is going to have a full service lobby. It's going to have you know, a great amenity package, but we're not going to put a pool in that building. We're not going to put things that put it over the top, but the building itself is going to have such fabulous layouts. It's going to have parking. People will overlook that. But a pool is a tough one because I don't know, Roberto, but every time I go to a pool in the building, it's empty because they can't staff it. No one there. There, it's closed. Right. So, so that building that you said is going to come up in a couple of years, you're... you're projection on price is obviously is unknown but is that it would probably it's going to be from today five percent ten percent fifteen percent more than where we are now yeah uh we're we're, we're projecting in right now between three and four percent year over year so if you compound it you're about there okay yeah yeah. And, and, and again, then what we do is that we look at inventory and competitive potential inventory also, right? So Jason gives us, you know, a ton of information. Hey, these four buildings are coming around the same time yours is, or there's nothing coming around the same time yours is. And that's how, that's how you can push prices, right? Or maybe we're going to lag Mickey Naftali's building on 83rd street by a cup by a year. So we're going to let Mickey set the, set the bar, but we already know what Mickey's thinking. So then we can, we can kind of, Right on his coattails. Right. Is there right. any legislative? I mean, the politicians are talking about affordable housing, and they're and they're talking about uh, trying to repurpose 
office buildings as housing, and they're trying to pass legislation. They're trying to make a legislative environment that's uh, more conducive to building and rehabbing buildings. Is it working? Are they are they effective? Are we going to see a big flood of new building coming as a result of of, of state and city government? Uh, it's going to take time. Yeah, they're still working through the, uh, the the changes in building code and fire code in order to accomplish this. There are some office, we, we, we probably look at a dozen or so office to residential opportunities every month right now. Um, maybe one or, or two of every 10, if we're lucky. Could Wait, is that, what, what does that mean? Because I got a call from a guy in Brooklyn who says, what have you got in Fairfield County that is uh, that I can buy and turn into apartments? What office buildings do you have that I can buy and turn into ap apartments that don't have to go through a couple years of planning and zoning? Are, is that the call you're getting? What what targets do you have for me, Stephen, that I can? Yeah. You know? um, I mean, you know, office buildings were designed to be office buildings. They weren't designed for residential living, right? So there are so many factors that go into evaluating. You've got to look at the column spacing. You've got to look at the windows, right? How many office buildings have operable windows? Start there. Right. No operable window. It's a no go because you can't get you can't get fresh air. Right. So you got to look at column spacing, uh, the windows. You got to look at where the core of the building is. Does that work? Is the building super deep? Because if it's super deep, what are you going to do with all that interior square footage? And that's kind of part of the equation that the legislators are looking at is like there's all these fire codes. You're not allowed to have a windowless room. Right. Well, how do you get a, a window in a room that's in the middle of a, 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 a structure? You can't. So either we have to change the code to allow for windowless rooms with fresh air intake, right, and air exchangers. Um, and, and you know, the, the big problem there is that that's building code. But then the fire department says, yeah, but hold on a second. My fireman or person has to go into that building and potentially save a life. And they got no way out because there's no window. So I'm not allowing this to happen because you're going to put my people at risk and they're not wrong, right? So then you say, okay, well, then I got to cut a core out of the building. Well, that's a huge expense. So right now, the buildings that we're looking at that make the most sense are either loft-style buildings, mostly south of 34th Street, Park Avenue, South Corridor, Chelsea Corridor, right? Or you own an office building with very little debt and we can knock the thing down and build a new building, right? And I'm actually talking to a client right now who has a great site in Midtown Manhattan with spectacular potential views and his debt is so low, he could actually knock it down and build a new building. So we're talking about doing that, we're looking at plans. But I've looked at others where it just doesn't work because the amount of money that would have to be invested into the building to convert it, the returns aren't there. So is New York receptive to that? When So when your client with low debt wants to do that, does New York get it? Do they make it easy for him to knock it down? Or do they get how acute this problem, this affordable housing problem is and the inventory problem is and will continue to be? That that they that I believe they do. So there's a um, th there's actually a, a department now at the mayor's office. It's called the 
office to residential accelerator program. And, and we actually spoke to them last week and they were incredibly helpful. And I give kudos to New York City for doing this because I'm not always very uh, complimentary of government, but this one they got right. Um, and the gentleman who heads it is incredibly knowledgeable. So we asked him like, how do you help developers or landowners get through the process? And what they can do, they can't change legislation, but they can make sure that you get to the right people to discuss it or discuss, hey, look, I'm in a commercial zone, but this is obviously a residential opportunity. I don't wanna go through a two year ULERT process. How can we cut that, cut down the red tape? And they'll help you find a way to do it. Um, you know, didn't, as, the old bar, didn't the old Barney's store just go through that, right? Barney's? Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and the Armani too, right? So, so what's the, you know, what's the name of the committee? It, it's called the Office to Residential Accelerator Program. Uh, and so the city's doing all it can, but you know, you can't just change zoning overnight. You can't change building code overnight. So it's going to take time. You know, five years from now, it'll probably help, but you know, it's not going to do a lot for 24 or 25. Steven, you're bumming me out. <laughs> I'm just being a realist. You know, I mean, it sounds like these apartments are not building fast enough and they're really going to be expensive. Yeah, I mean, listen, the governor and the mayor, you know, they, they love to discuss, you know, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that because it sounds great for an election campaign, but nothing moves fast in government. We know that. Right. So we have to taper a little bit, you know. Um, but, yeah, I think I think housing prices in New York will, uh, you know, will continue to rise as interest rates ease, uh, you know, until we have enough supply. And you talked about affordable housing. I mean, most of the buildings we're talking about right now don't even work for affordable housing, right? So, you know, we had a system that wasn't perfect, but it worked. But it was unpopular in the press because the optics were that wealthy people were getting a tax break, real estate tax break. And they were, they don't need it. But what they don't understand is that Every time that wealthy person bought an apartment, it helped build two affordable apartments. So there was a there was a method to the madness, and it may not have been popular, and it may have seemed a little garish because, like, why does Ken Griffin need a you know tax abatement? But if he buys an apartment that can yield two affordable apartments, isn't that worth it? And who's really taking the hit? The city's taking the hit. Where are all those affordable? I think on, on an early show, we talked with you about uh, a lot of the affordable, a lot of the big scale was going outside of Manhattan and that we were starting to see a redevelopment of Queens, re redevelopment in, in Staten Island, other places where uh, new development was more affordable. Is that still a trend or did they, is there a flight to safety back to Manhattan? Well, so those pro the, the old programs allowed offsite affordable to be built. So you didn't have to build it within the building. So yeah, you know, developers are buying they're building it where they had more affordable land. The new regs until they sunset uh, were that it had to be within the building. So that so if you build the building in Manhattan, the affordable was in Manhattan. If you built it in Park Slope, the affordable was in Park Slope. You know, it's again, you know, I hate to get into the political realm, but you know, if you build good workforce housing and, the, and, and, and it's in Queens or it's in Staten Island or it's in, you know, Brooklyn, because that's where you can afford to build it, isn't it better than not building it at all? 
right? So you know we we we've got to we've got to get to an equilibrium, you know, where where the 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 market rate and the affordable both help each other. And and listen, the city owns a lot of land. The city could pony up land to to, to build on. The city could also change zoning regulations, so a lot of this vacant land that uh, exists around some of the um, middle income housing developments that were built like in the 50s and 60s. You know, there's beautiful parks and I don't want to take away park space, but you can build a few more buildings, you know, in Stytown or in Peter Cooper Village or, you know, you name it, right? We just have to change our zoning rules to allow it. And there's opportunity, but you need reasonable and rational government. And I think you need a private and public uh uh, partnership that works better. Can we talk neighborhoods? You got a question, Roberto? Well, I do. I, it's completely off the subjects, kind of. I just wanted to <laughs> let's, let's go. Let's go with neighborhoods. I'm good with this. Yes. All right. Please. So when I look at your report, I look and I say, oh, okay, we're we're talking about Midtown West, Lower Manhattan, Downtown East. Uh, Billionaires Row is is considered a neighborhood. Can you talk me through what's the next hot? What's been the hot neighborhood? And where is it shifting? Jason. Can I, yeah, I just just because this, I'm glad you brought up this page. It's interesting. If you look at, um, you just mentioned Billionaire's Row, right? You can see some of the difference between, right, exactly. Thanks for sir, hovering over there. The um, There's a lot of ambitious pricing. There's a lot of variation in, in the different. And even if we go to, you know what's even better, um, John, if you don't mind, can you find the one that this is showing quarter to quarter to quarter? Can you show the one that please shows active shadow um, closed yeah. in contract? Uh, go. go go back a little bit more. Th this has all the neighborhoods. If we can go to the same one you were on that showed about uh, about eight or nine. Uh, yeah, keep going back. This this is the page. Okay. So this is going to help answer your question. You if you can hover again around Billionaires Row or above it. You see the difference between currently active and closed, the light blue and the darkest blue? Yes. This is very ambitious pricing, right? You, you see this massive spread. Okay. But that's okay because, you know, there's a lot of intrinsic value. There's a lot of art in, in this art, not, not art piece of the wall, but I mean, the again, the art and the science, there's a lot of just art here in the pricing. Then if we can look for a moment at, say, you know, some of the other neighborhoods where there's not such a spread. Um, Upper West yeah. Side. There's no Upper, spread. Yeah, Upper West Side, Downtown East. This, so I think that answers your question, right? This is one where we talked about this internally. We can almost go to developers with the message. You know, look at this. Look at this graph. The, the consumer, you're asking and the consumer is meeting you, right? There is no spread. There, there is no negotiation. They're saying, yes, we will pay what you're asking. So there's the ability maybe here to actually go for to go up in pricing. Isn't is, this driven by availability of inventory? A lot of it is. So for a example, like the next hottest neighborhood might be, you know, the Upper East Side along Second Avenue because that's where they're building. It, yeah. So here's that that's a, you you I, I, I promise that I'm not texting these questions. This is <laughs> this is not set up ahead of time. It's a perfect question. Let me tell you why. Everything is subordinate to supply and demand, okay? Everything is a function of supply and demand, right? Price per square foot, we can talk about it today. It's a function of what the supply looks like and based on that, what the demand looks like, right? So like you said, if if nothing is out there and all of a sudden neighborhood X gets this great product, 
Well, then where are the sales going? They're going to that neighborhood and it makes it, you know, an up and coming neighborhood or the next hottest thing. Like it's all driven by supply and demand. Yeah. But yeah, this so, is a really interesting, you know, um, again, we, you know, we could take this and go to a developer and say, listen, you might want to consider going up because the consumer is meeting you. We're not having to sit on the market for years and talk about, let's try to find a middle ground. We're, we're there as we come out of the ground. We're already there. I'm not sure we understand this chart like you understand this. So take this, <laughs> make the, simplify this for me. When I see Upper West Side and I see flat line where, where there's not much difference between active and closed price, uh, how do I, what, what does that mean? You know, what, what advice do you give developers in the Upper uh, West Side yeah. when you see that? Yeah, you, you got this. This is just this is just fun at this point. I appreciate these questions. So here's the thing. This is the way I look at it, right? Closed is the most pertinent data, right? Because we know there's actually a stamp, a date. There's a price. We we know where the public stands, right? I would say of this chart, um, the you know the active or the even we looked at shadow inventory, right? What developers are holding back? That's the least relevant because a lot of times shadow inventory could have been priced five or 10 years ago. Right. It was what the developer thought pricing was going to be at this current point in time. It hasn't been subject to the court of public opinion. No, you could put something on the market for 5,000 square foot. The buyer might say, you got to be kidding me. We're at 2,500, right? So active is somewhere, it, it's, it's been out there and the, and the public opinion is upon it and they're starting to maybe, maybe move down. And then of course, contracts signed are the ones we, well, they've been contract signed for a reason, right? They had to be the closest, there, there had to be the closest correlation between developer expectations and consumer appraisal, right? That's why they sold. There was the least spread. So there's a substantial, that, looking at Upper East Side versus Upper West Side, there's not much spread on the Upper West Side. There's a lot of spread on the Upper East Side, relatively yeah, and the, speaking. And the Upper East a thinly traded market is what threw that number off so badly. So it, mm. so data wise, this is correct. Theoretically, it doesn't make a lot of sense, and we know that. <laughs> so Upper West Side is is kind of a a better one, right? The the two best to compare would be like a Billionaire's Row and an Upper West Side, where Billionaire's Row there's just this ethereal thought process of like we'll price things at you know thirty million dollars, and the public saying okay, yeah, we'll buy them at eight or nine million dollars, right? And then on the Upper East Side there's this correlation between what the developer expected and what the consumer is appraising at. And that's is where part, we- part, Is part of that disparity, the sample size, like billionaires row, you might have 10 apartments where you're looking at the Upper East Side, Upper West Side, you could be a hundred. Sure. And, and what, you, what you gentlemen are doing right now in this call and right now in these questions is exactly what I was alluding to a little bit ago. It's, not, it's very easy to build a narrative and be like, well, there's the data proves it, right? When you start to peel the, the layers back, and you start to question, is it inventory? Is it availability? Is it a certain building that came out and just drove prices? When 220 Central Park South shook the market, when that hit, it changed everything. I mean, you could see spikes in graph like you can't imagine, right? Yeah. Or you can't imagine because you've seen it. But you're <laughs> right. It's not just as it's very easy to use the data to build the narrative you want to build. But when you start to peel it back, there's so many little factors that affect what seem like the obvious. Yeah. And that's why I was alluding in the beginning. And also, if you, you know, when you look at the active, you know, the active could also be made up at any one time when you pull the data, right? It could be made up 
exclusively of penthouse apartments or, or swayed towards penthouse apartments or swayed towards a new building that just came out that has aspirational pricing, right? You know, we just looked at a building on the east side, I won't say which one, uh, you know, it's, it's priced 20% higher than it should be. It's not selling, unfortunately. Developer looks like he's gonna be underwater. But if you did a report and included those units today, the, the, the numbers are going to be swayed because they're going to be they're going to be 20 percent off. There's a percentage of that data set that will be 20 percent off. That's right. right. Which drives Jason crazy. <laughs> no, that, that, yeah, oh, gosh. Yeah, exactly. So but see, that's what I was alluding to in the beginning about. It's 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 not enough just to go through these reports and say Q3 versus Q4. Bam. Here's the answer. Here's where we're heading. That that's that's not right. It's too easy. We have to peel it back. And we have to zoom in, like John said, like, what, what do you see? What do you feel? A lot of it's that. We've seen things priced in. Mortgage rates are priced in now. Um, there's less inventory. We have to start going to fundamental economics, not what Q3 and Q4 says, because the data can be wildly skewed and almost, frankly, wildly incorrect. We need to back up, look at the big picture, look at the economic fundamentals and say, what's priced in, what's not priced in, what's to come? Why is Hudson Yards so exceptional? I mean, we're looking at 11 million and um, current inventory is priced at seven. That's substantially higher than every other category, except for with the exception of Billionaire's Row, which is niche product. Why is Hudson Yards so much higher than the rest of the West Side? That's a really great question because <laughs> yeah. I don't know who wants to live there. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I, think I think one of the answers is I mean, of course, they're really tall buildings, but I think I think they they sold the dream. I think they marketed really, 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 really well. I think that's just a story of unbelievable, like, hey, here's the vision. And they sold the vision. People can I ask a question that's can I ask a question that's similar to what John just asked? If I have a young niece or daughter in the city, they're 28 years old, they have a great job, they're paying ridiculous dollars for a rental i'm trying to tell them what my experience was which was buy a place if it kills you because it will pay off in the end where are you suggesting those kids look i i was the upper east side and upper west side but now everyone says the upper east side is not cool but it sounds like it's the most affordable i mean the upper east side can be depending on how far east you go i think uh hell's kitchen is still a reasonable value um Murray Hill, Kipps Bay, still a reasonable value. Uh, you know, those are those to me, those are two good neighborhoods to look at. Upper Manhattan, excellent value. I mean, you know, I saw something on the upper upper Madison Avenue that looked mm -hmm. great and it was a studio, but I don't know how much the maintenance was. You know? right. but, but I mean, Upper Manhattan, the numbers in Upper Manhattan really haven't moved that much over the years uh, as, as compared to. Uh, okay. South of certainly 110th Street. If you go north of a 125th, you'll get even a better deal. Um, and even some of those buildings still come with actual tax abatements, so you can get a, a, a tax abatement in a building that you know you own in instead of renting. Uh, you know, those to me are the neighborhoods that they still seem more affordable. The Lower East Side has actually become very chic and kind of unaffordable for a lot of people. Um, so you know. Uh, Hell's Kitchen, Murray Hill, Kipps Bay, uh, Upper Manhattan, uh, Upper Upper West Side. I mean, you know, for instance, let's 
take a look real quickly. A building like the Vanderwater, 122nd and Broadway, in the heart of Columbia University, right? You can get a fabulous two-bedroom apartment there for in the high one millions easily, right? With a spectacular view of the city. That same apartment in the 80s is a million dollars more. And you're in a building with 20,000 square feet of amenities, with a pool, with parking and everything else. You just have to be willing to look in neighborhoods you didn't think about. But once you get to those neighborhoods, you realize, hey, these are really nice neighborhoods. There are very few bad neighborhoods in the city anymore, right? I mean, like you got to really look for the trouble now. Yeah. There's just neighborhoods that have a subway stop and neighborhoods that don't have a subway stop. Exactly. Yeah. And and all the neighborhoods I talked about, all, all are served by subways. A active inventory, not shadow inventory, there's active inventory in Manhattan. What was it more or less 2015? What was it 2019? Where is it now? And where will it be in two years? Overall inventory or, or, or new development? Active, just active inventory. Like for right now, we were saying there might be 4,500 units, new inventory, new development or less. What was it? There are 3,000 in the pipeline. There's a little about 5,000, a little less than 5,000 in, in, in active and shadow. Um, so what, how does that compare to 2015 when it was just like there was nothing and then everything got overbuilt and then overpriced and then they were, you yeah. know, no one would capitulate on price. Like, where was that? That was 2019, 2020, 2020, right in there. So what, how has that inventory changed and where is it going? It's just diminishing? Yeah. Yeah, so I'll start there. It's tough, and I'll tell you why. So it's all about the difference. When you say um, active. You have two minutes. Okay. Is it, is it active it, you know, on street easier, for example, or is it active plus the shadow the developer's holding? The reason I ask is because in 15, we didn't have that shadow, those shadow numbers. We didn't know. So it's hard to compare 2015 total inventory to 2023 Everything that I've seen, sorry, 2021, I didn't mean it's 23, 2021 was really the peak. We yeah. saw the most of everything out there, right? And now we're definitely, the, the key story is the numbers change. There's a lot of art. It's a lot of, you know, it, it's hard to follow it, but the numbers are, are it's contracting. We know that there's, there's less on the market than there was. There's less coming out than there was. And that's the idea. That's where to kind of maybe summarize is that COVID made the world realized Manhattan's resiliency, right? Prices came up. They they were overbought. They were too high. They settled down a little bit. Mortgage rates did not collapse the market like economics would have said they would, right? So now that's priced in. There's less inventory and prices are going up because of building costs. So the, the market, so to answer John's question a while back, which I didn't, is that the market is prime for, for prices to start climbing again. That's what I, that's what I see. And again, that's not from looking at Q3 to Q4 or Q2 to Q4 or Q4 2022 to Q4 2023. That's pulling back and thinking fundamentals. Right. And, and I want to thank you. Looking forward, inventory is going to be low for the next couple of years. Right. All right. I want to thank you both for a really great show. That's a good segue when you say low inventory, because next week we're doing Wall Street South. We're going to West Palm Beach where they're building as fast as they can. And they don't seem to have that problem of no inventory. They're going to be bringing it on as fast as they can. So we're going to find out about that next Thursday. I hope you two will join us and help us ask some hard questions. 
We can't That'd just give in the Wall Street guys softballs. Yeah, send us send us the link. You know, they got a lot of they got a lot of land that they can develop in Florida, a little bit different than a little island like Manhattan. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And if you like Thank the show, you like so us, much. share it. Except and, uh, you know, tell all your friends. Except Thank you both. They're, they're really displacing, great. Show. They're displacing the alligators. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys. Thank you Thanks. so much. Jason, enjoy your trip, brother. <laughs> Great job, all clear.